Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry here on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri. Uh, we're glad that you're with us on this Halloween day. And do we have a special program for you today? I'm breaking all my rules. <laughs> we uh you'll you'll understand why here in a minute and, and to help me do it <laughs> i have a a collaborator uh ed herman who's now back in columbia uh hi ed glad you're with us today hello dick nice to be here thank you yeah you're an old kop enter yourself uh you had a, a what a show for 10 or 11 years didn't you back in the 70s and 80s uh, late 70s through early 80s, yes. I, I was the host of Ionizations, which was a program of uh, new music, experimental audio, improvised music, and so on. And I was also a host of The Morning Air. Oh, wow. Okay. And you being a, well, a composer, uh, I'm going to go through some of the list of things that you have been or are. Composer, audio engineer radio host, producer, performer, um, lived in Chicago, San Francisco, Yeah, got a degree at Mizzou, right? I studied music composition and electronic music at the music department here, yes. Okay, we'll let it go at that. Uh, you, uh, you put out a, no oh, sort of a, I don't know, not an appeal, but an offer uh, recently to KOPNers that uh, you had a, mm, what should we call it, a, a, a composition, of a poem, would you call it? No, it's a short story, short story, right? Are you talking about this uh, rule-breaking performance that we're going to hear? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> this thing called The Hound. Yeah, it's actually it's a musical setting of a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. Okay, a musical setting for the story. So, And you, you actually are the narrator uh, of this today, is that correct? Yes, I did not do the music for this. Uh, the music was composed by Mark Hardy, and he asked me to do the narration. Yeah, so uh, I listened to this and uh, was a little bit, uh, <laughs> well, as with both of us, I understand, uh, horror is not our cup of tea. <laughs> not exactly, no. <laughs> I, I've, I've tried to... I've, I've, I've tried to think about what is the appeal and you know I guess the, the, the common explanation is well you can indulge in this kind of fantasy horror then you're not so likely to enjoy it in real life um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if, if, if it really works that way or not but uh, I, I've never been a fan of it myself uh, literature movies um, haunted houses you know all the spooky yeah. stuff that goes with Halloween it's, it's kind of goofy and and I, I hope harmless, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Columbia and I think the creature of the Black Lagoon played at the Uptown Theater when I was very young. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know that I've ever wanted to go to a horror mo movie since then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
it really got me. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Well, I, I will confess, since you mentioned that, I do have a copy of that film. Oh, my God. I, I, I went through um, a brief period. I, I realized since I do electronic music I, and I realized that electronics were used in the early 50s and well, even back to the late 40s in one case to create weird sounds and suspenseful stuff and scary sounds in science fiction and horror films. Mm-hmm. So I I went out and I, I pursued a few of these just to hear what it was like. You know, it was more more research than most of the films are really bad. But <laughs> th- there is some interesting use of, of, of early electronics to create uh, some kind of mood. Mood, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I can't remember anything but the look of this creature coming up out of the water. And... Uh, <laughs> Later, as I was a, a waterfront uh, staff member at Camp Thunderbird for the Boy Scouts, uh, I had to overcome some stuff to go out on that lake. <laughs> I bet you were always on the lookout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if mostly that I couldn't feel things below me, you know, because you might be lurking down there, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, my. You never know what's beneath the surface. There. That's oh, what an analogy. Well, um, horror is what we're going to hear in The Hound, this um, this piece that has music to it. Now, in listening to it, uh, how many different instruments are we going to hear um, adding the percussion and creating the mood? It's scored for violin viola two cellos bass and harp although the harp part is played by a keyboard player on a synthesizer with a harp sound and then there's a couple little finger cymbals that i play Hmm. okay now can you uh reveal and if there's something to reveal can you reveal uh are any of the sounds going to be cues for a certain kind of mood like when the harp does its little thing is that a particular preparation for a shift you know that how music works and and it's manipulating me i know (laughs) well i i think uh, you can hear it as a film score it's it's mostly background music it definitely sets a mood all the music is completely written out. It's a full score. Wow. Uh, the composer is conducting the, the musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this live several times before we recorded it. Uh, oh. for, first was at a Halloween party, mm-hmm. and we, we were all in goofy costumes, and, <laughs> and the performance, it was really overdone. You know, I was screaming by the end. That, that's not that's not the case in this recording. And then we did it at uh, a theater festival where we were on stage and, you know, it was an uh, auditorium with, with a live audience. And th- that was pretty satisfying because, um, you know, you get the reinforcement of the audience. It wasn't the, the, the rowdy party scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was more more like a um, not a classical music performance, but these are classical musicians. They're playing classical instruments, mm-hmm. but it, it was a you know a formal performance. And then we went into the studio and recorded it. And there we did it a little bit differently. Um, all the 
the musical parts were recorded separately and then I recorded myself doing the voice and then Mark, the composer and I put it together mm. so that the, the voice parts are at the right places because in the score, the, the, the music's all written out and the words are all written out. So it all is lined up to correspond. He's very deliberate in the way he, he did everything. Oh, okay. And the way it sounded to me, just as a, preparation for folks it, it just sounded your voice was very um very like i'm listening to radio theater and um yeah it just gave a a, a perfect tone to uh, the kind of piece that it is um is there any um what should we say uh, uh warnings that we need to give the audience about uh, any particular parts well, of the hound here i i don't want to scare people off but um uh i can give a quick summary of, of what what the story is um it's about it's a about 30 minutes long it's a monologue a first person monologue of a guy who has led a completely deranged life and he's about to kill himself mm. so he reveals this right at the beginning that he's he's contemplating killing himself because he's he, he's not feeling bad about the life he's led, but he realizes it's led to his destruction. Mm. He he and his friend have have um, uh, satiated their desires, as I think might be one way he puts it, mm -hmm. by indulging in grave robbing all mm. over the world they've gone to these famous graves and they've robbed all these graves and they've they've made this little museum in their house of all the artifacts that they've stolen from the graves mm. and they went a little too far and robbed the grave of a famous grave robber himself mm. and that set this chain of events in motion the hound is this this haunting sound that they've been hearing ever since they robbed that grave mm -hmm. and he knows it's not going to end well <laughs> is there a particular instrument that is played to represent the hound not really it's more okay. described yeah. uh sometimes yeah. you'll hear a, a drone of the bass in the background when he's talking about the hound sometimes uh, a drone of a very high-pitched violin but mostly it's it's more implied mm -hmm. okay well, listeners, uh, this is new for Glocal News and Social Artistry, where we try to promote building a more humane world, and we'll try to get something more humane out of the hound after you hear the uh, recording, uh, which is narrated by our guest today, Ed Herman, and uh, the music is provided by a group of uh, musicians uh, directed by Mark Hardy, is that correct? I got that. Mark right. Hardy, yes, is yeah. the composer and conductor. Composer and conductor. And the piece is called The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft, who who lived back in the, the late 80s, uh, 1880s and early 1900s. Uh, and uh, as we heard, had a rough life. So uh, please uh, fasten your seatbelts for the listening of. The Hound The Hound mm. 
in my tortured ears, there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It's not a dream. It is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. My friend John is a mangled corpse. I alone know why. And such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I too shall be mangled in the same way. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, John and I had followed every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. But each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us. And this we found potent only by gradually increasing the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. It was this frightful emotional need which led us to that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalog even partly the trophies adorning the nameless museum where we jointly dwelt. It was a blasphemous place where, with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled a universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room far underground. Around the walls were cases of antique mummies, alternating with lifelike bodies, perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist. And headstones from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contain skulls of all shapes, and heads preserved in various stages of disillusion. One might find the rotting, bald pates of famous noblemen 
and the fresh golden heads of newly buried children. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed, brass, and woodwind, on which John and I produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemoniacal ghastliness. While in a multitude of ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it, long before I thought of destroying myself. The excursions on which we collected our treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate, John was always the leader, and it was he who led the way to that accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumor and legend of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul and had stolen a potent object from a mighty sepulchre. 
I can recall the scene in these final moments. The pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows. The grotesque trees drooping to meet the neglected grass. The crumbling slabs. The vast legions of bats that flew against the moon. The odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things. And worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound, which we could neither see nor place. As we heard this baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry. For he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this same spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved in this ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale moon, the sickening odors, and the strange, half-heard, directionless baying. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold, and beheld a rotting oblong box, crusted with mineral deposits. It was tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Amazingly much was left of the object despite the lapse of 500 years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness. And we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth. And its eyeless sockets, 
that had once glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was an odd figure of a winged hound, or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved from a small piece of green jade. The expression on its features was repellent in the extreme, suggesting at once death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription which neither John nor I could identify. And on the bottom was a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it. That this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the century grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon. The ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Hazred. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from supernatural manifestations of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavernide face of its owner, and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from that abhorrent spot, with a stolen amulet in John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking some unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure 
So too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home. We thought we heard the faint distant baying of some gigantic hound. But the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, alone, without servants, in a few rooms of an ancient house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of a visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by frequent fumblings in the night. Not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once, we fancied that a large body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it. And another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing. And we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination alone. That same disturbed imagination, which still prolonged in our ears, the faint baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum. And sometimes we burned strangely scented candles before it. We read much in the Necronomicon about its properties and about the relation of ghouls' souls to the objects it symbolized. And we were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September 24, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Believing it to be John, I bade the knocker enter but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused John from his sleep, he professed ignorance of the event 
and became as worried as I. It was that night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, while we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we rushed to the door and threw it open. Whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard as if receding far away a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized, with the blackest of apprehensions, that the apparently disembodied chatter was, beyond a doubt, in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly, we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad, but sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being, whose nature we could not guess. And every night that demonic baying rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. The horror reached a culmination on November 18, when John, walking home after dark, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams reached the house, and I hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, the amulet, that damned thing. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demonic sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, 
but I dared not look at it. When I saw on the dim-lit moor a wide, nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights I heard the baying again, and before a week was over, I felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening as I strolled on Victoria Embankment, I saw a black shape obscure the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen John must soon befall me. The next day I carefully wrapped the amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent, sleeping owner, I knew not. But I felt that I must at least try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was and why it pursued me were questions still vague. But I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into absolute despair when, in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crimes of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' den, an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace. And those around had heard all night above the usual clamor a faint, deep, insistent note, as of a gigantic hound. So at last I stood again in that unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows and leafless trees drooped sullenly and the night wind howled maniacally. 
The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated, and frightened away a large horde of bats which had been hovering around it. I know not why I went there, unless to pray, or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. But whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave until I killed it with a blow of my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed. For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed, not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of flesh and hair and leering at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp fangs yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep, sardonic bay, as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost amulet of green jade, I, I merely screamed and ran away, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. rides the star wind. Claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses. Dripping death aside a bacchanal of bats from night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable.
Welcome back to Glocal News in Social Artistry here on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri. I'm the host, Dick Dalton, and we just heard a Halloween special of The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft, which was narrated by my guest today, Ed Herman, who's uh, back in Columbia uh, and uh, an old KOPN or himself back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, welcome back, Ed. That was quite a piece. Well, thank you, Dick. <laughs> I, 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 you were talking about uh, how to how to learn something about uh, making the world better out of out of this experience. I'd say first step is don't do this. <laughs> thank you. That, that, that's a, yeah. <laughs> don't try this at home. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we've just listened to you narrating this uh, sort of horror story uh, written by a guy that that had a somewhat uh, horrible life himself. Um, you knew a little bit about his history, the H.P. Lovecraft. Well, barely. I, I'm no expert. Um, mm -hmm. He he was an, an American writer. Uh, born i think in the 1880s early 90s something like that he didn't live very long both his parents died young he was sick uh, had had a number of health problems and barely eked out a living writing short stories for uh dime magazines i think weird stories was one of his main mm. uh, outlets mm -hmm. uh he was never famous in his lifetime he barely made a living writing and then after his death his uh, stories got collected into books and anthologies and oh. he's probably much more popular now than he, i mean since his death than mm -hmm. than he was uh during his life mm -hmm. i i haven't read very much of his stuff because uh, mm -hmm. as as we discussed earlier i'm not a fan of this this particularly either yes folks I, I, uh, <laughs> if if you missed the first part of the show uh ed and i both confess that we are not horror of fans uh, of the genre whether movies or otherwise um yes but I, I thought it was a fun project though and i, I should um give credit to the performers here oh please uh, yeah. uh, mark hardy is is responsible for this uh he's a composer um a friend of mine who lives in chicago he also uh, for a while was a video editor for oprah winfrey Oh. Uh, but but anyway, he I guess he's sort of a fan of horror film, but he he's he does all kinds of music. So he wrote this music. He conceived it. He gathered the musicians together and he asked me to be the narrator. Mm -hmm. uh, and the musicians are Hannah Brock is playing violin, Sid Sandberg, viola, Jason Rainovich on cello, Nora Barton also plays cello, Sam Bradshaw plays bass. And Jeff Kowalkowski is playing a keyboard, and that's the harp sounds that you heard. Okay. Yeah, they really stood out to me in some way. Uh, um, that little room. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I thought, oh, something's coming. I know. This is a, <laughs> I need to prepare for something. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a very effective musical setting. I, I thought Mark did a really good job with the music. Yeah, and you said that this was all written out. I mean, these people are looking at musical scores and doing those pieces. It, it you know, to a person that doesn't read music very much, I play a ukulele and I read a little bit, but uh, you know, that's fascinating that these kinds of 
sounds could be so uh, scored. Yeah. Yeah. And you yourself uh, have played uh, a synthesizer a lot in your life, haven't you? I have worked with synth synthesizers, yes. Yeah. And sometimes live, sometimes in the studio, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes with acoustic instruments playing through the synthesizer. So it is processing and modifying the acoustic sounds. Wow. Yeah. Synthesizers are amazing tools that I have no experience with, but uh, yeah. Well, Ed, um, I think we owe it to our listeners <laughs> <laughs> to <An> apology uh, <laughs> well you know apologize or 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 try to make something uh, uh helpful and useful out of uh out of the story of the hound where this uh poor man has been uh, uh just mm, consumed with uh, i don't know if it's narcissistic desire but it's it, you know the desires of life have consumed him and his friend and and his friend, I think, has already died. It said, and uh, yeah, and now he's uh, feeling hounded, <laughs> mm -hmm. pun intended, uh, and he thinks he might just uh, end his own life. Uh, There's a passage early on that I think is revealing, where the narrator says something like, in explaining their later actions, he says something about we had to keep going further and further to satisfy our jaded sensibilities. I may not be quoting it right. I remember that but, phrase. Yeah. But, but this idea of normal life isn't enough. So needing to make it more extreme and then that's not enough. So needing to make that more extreme. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very, very addictive kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, well, so yeah. I think you could, you could, hear this story in in those terms of this addiction that just gets out of control mm -hmm. is who was the performer that uh had to do his motorcycle jump further each time and more <laughs> dangerous and you know it, it, well we know how that's going to end yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I i can see a few celebrity type folks that we hear about that do that but it probably is much more common than we have any idea uh, in our our world today. Um, I just been uh, reading a, a, a book that just came out recently by Gabor Mate, a uh, Canadian physician. I had read one of his books before called uh, "In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts," which, by the way, is not a horror book. But it was about uh, dealing with addictions when he was working at a Vancouver um, group that was trying to help uh, folks that were uh, heavily addicted to various kinds of drugs. Uh, but his new book is called The Myth of Normal. And the subtitle has to do with uh, our toxic society or our toxic culture and uh, the illnesses that it produces. And, and to me, um, our toxic culture that he talks about is sort of presented as an analogy in this uh, story of the hound where the person that you were the narrator for, the person telling the story, 
uh, was telling of the toxic culture that he was immersed in and uh, what that was doing to him. And uh, although he seemed to see that one way, uh, maybe the only, but maybe not the only way out was to end his life, um, many people in our world today find themselves with you know, chronic diseases and uh, mental, and this is not just uh, a few people. This is this is society wide. Uh, Mate is is saying the numbers of folks that are traumatized early on in their lives and trying to their bodies uh, trying to live with that their minds kind of doesn't separate too much the body and the the mind and and all of the interconnections because it's all it's all connected um and that we have it we have a tough time struggling with uh, our trauma as uh, it has injured us in the past uh, do you have any thoughts related to that and the hound or something else <laughs> well, I I think I'll, most people have probably had the feeling, if if or the awareness that you might be doing something that's really not the best thing to be doing for yourself, but mm -hmm. you just do it anyway for some reason. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, that's because other people around you are doing it, and it just seems like the normal thing to do. And you've got these doubts, but you just do it anyway. Um, I don't that 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 may be related to the uh, addiction idea too. I don't know, or, or maybe mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I think I think what you're 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 positing about the toxic culture, um, the hound certainly relates to that, and I, I think you and I would probably throw in a lot of pop culture that seems to. Um, rely on extreme shock and um, just extremes in extreme behavior, depravity, whatever you want to call it, you know, mm -hmm. things th that, that people get attracted to just because it's outrageous. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the, the, you know, the good side of that might be that it's, it's escapism and it, but you know that's the bad side of it too, because that's that's uh, not acknowledging what's really going on. Mm -hmm. If you're just seeing it as escapism and not not recognizing that, you know this so this is based on somebody's real thoughts. Mm -hmm. And why why do we ingest this kind of material? Yeah. And you know, I'm just now as you're saying that, uh, thinking that a culture can end up. Um getting so much into that that it in a sense kills itself the culture the society yeah. can implode uh, history has shown that that's happened more than once so yeah. uh, maybe De yeah decadent societies that, mm -hmm. that just sort of rot from within yeah. that or the ones that just keep going to uh, aberrant behaviors um so let us say that that is our take, or at least mine, and, and you, you don't oppose it, <laughs> take on uh, using the hound as a bit of an analogy or a warning to us that uh, we may not want to yield in uh, so deeply into the desires and the, the digressions of life. 
but to find a moral higher ground, uh, self-awareness, uh, kindness. Uh, put in some words, Ed. Come on, uh, some uh, understanding. Think before some you compassion. leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, with, and yeah. with that, I'm going to say <laughs> thank you, Ed Herman, for bringing this to us. And uh, folks, uh, thank you for joining us on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri. Uh, without your support, we could not be here. And 50 years has shown us that you are supporting us. We appreciate it. And remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>